0: Have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Galatians, uh, chapter five, uh, verses sixteen through twenty-five. We've been giving our attention uh, to this text for two weeks. We will continue to look at it uh, today, and then for six more weeks. And you say, "Well, I'll just show up one of those weeks, and and uh, we'll have it uh, we'll have it figured out by then." But I want to encourage you as we follow along that we are looking at this text. Uh, in relation to our reflection of God's glory in a fallen world. Um, And we will continue to visit this text uh, over the course of the next weeks as we seek to unpack bits and pieces of it along the way. Uh, Coming out of, for those of you who are uh, maybe with us for the first time today, coming out of our identity series Uh, our last point that is the part of our statement or our identity statement and that is to live in the world distinctively and we live we seek to live in the world distinctively for a specific purpose and that purpose is to bring honor and glory to God and to communicate in the course of our living uh, in the way that we uh, hold on to Christ Uh, The value that we place on our relationship with God and all that we do, uh, we look at all of that uh, as a reflection of the glory of God in a fallen world. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit sentience, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul writes, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, faithfulness, I'm sorry, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So far, we've been able to see uh, in Galatians that we are justified by faith in Christ and His atoning work, not by faith in the law and not by the works of the law. So the law cannot save us. They will not, they cannot. In fact, we know that the law condemns. The law declares the judgment or the penalty that we deserve because we are lawbreakers. We've recognized that. We've seen that justification is not the end of a person's salvation. Uh, It is a beginning step, the first step, Justification is an an immediate and spontaneous, gracious act by God whereby He legally declares the person who is justified forgiven for past, present, and future wrongs, sins that is, and declared righteous. In that justification is not the end of a person's salvation, we've also seen what Paul has written. And he has written to the Galatians, and he points to the ongoing work of salvation. When we talk about it, we speak of it in biblical terms, and the biblical term is that of sanctification. In other words, sanctification is the ongoing, and, and I'm, these are my words put together, but the ongoing evidentiary work of salvation where the person who has been justified is gradually to be more like Christ in his or her life. We often speak of sanctification using a couple of terms. The Bible does this, we do this as well. Uh, one is being transformed, uh, that is the change of nature that is brought onto us by the Spirit of God. And Paul writes uh, to the Romans that it is also being conformed. Uh, let's listen to the difference. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 2 we, he writes do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there we hear that word transform. In 2 Corinthians verse three, chapter 3 and verse 18 Paul writes to the church at Corinth and we all will with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, we hear this word of being conformed. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, you're probably already asking, well, what's the difference? Uh, Oftentimes we use those two words, and even sometimes we may even use them interchangeably. But there is a difference between those two words. We can say that sanctification does constitute change, okay, since it is described by using words like transform and conform. We're talking about change. In transformation, there is an inward change in nature that implies that something is being done to us. In fact, it's more than an implication. We are being changed inwardly. In other words, none of us have the ability to change our own inner being. We don't have any ability to change someone else's inner being. However, we can conform. In other words, conform or conformity, on the other hand, implies an action on our part. That is, that one acts in accordance with or conforms to a certain way or action, and I'm going to add the word expectation. We conform to a particular expectation. Now, what does all that have to do with our text? That's the point. Okay? Well, the answer is everything. The text that we read and what we have already been discussing says everything about this. In our text today, we are hearing and seeing both the transforming work in sanctification and the conforming work in sanctification. And just be clear, we are talking about sanctification. Take your Bibles there and just turn back there to Galatians chapter 2, 3, and look at verse Two. Let me ask you only this: Paul says, and he does this in the two questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Now he's already spoken of justification. Now he's talking about: Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So we have Paul helping them understand that they are justified by Christ alone, not the law, and they are sanctified by the work of God in and through the indwelling of His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has taken up residence in the life of every believer. Now, we didn't mention this, we didn't press it hard, But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not a second gift from God that some receive and some do not receive. Paul in writing to the Romans says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Hear that again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And Paul makes it clear to the Galatians in chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, Because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart. And this brings us to the place that we ended last week. Remember, we're considering... What we said last week was the formation for reflecting the glory of God in the fallen world. week before that, we dealt with the foundation. In other words, we're considering our spiritual formation. That is, what is taking place in us spiritually that enables us to reflect the glory of God in this fallen world. And, and let's be clear, uh, that is our purpose. That's what we were about It's important because we were created to do what? To bring honor and glory to God. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we also have said, and we know by our own lives, that sin has rendered us incapable of this. Therefore, we need and we have needed, for those who trust Christ, we needed to be recreated or born again by the Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. In giving attention to the transformed and the conforming life, we said last week that it was a life, and Adam brought it back to our attention this morning as we looked at our confession from Romans chapter 7, that it is a life of continued conflict. But we ended last week and we said we wanted to consider Two other things about this transformed life. Not only is this a life of continued conflict, that is, the spirit in us is in constant tension and a constant battle with the sinful flesh that remains in us. Remember, Paul referred to this when he wrote, We read it just a moment ago, you are being perfected in other words he was implying that there was an ongoing work in us toward perfection we said last week that we were not immediately made perfect now we are declared perfect in justification but in the practical sense of our living that is not evident at this time but it is moving in that direction He is implying that the perfection which we have been declared to be in is not completed yet, thus the ongoing conflict. And we know this is true. We give evidence of it in our own life, but Scripture uh, has taught us this. Now, the second thing that we want to look at is that this life is a life of continued growth. Now you may wonder, why use that word? I don't see anything in the text In Galatians chapter 5, I don't see anything in there that tells us anything about growth. Well, I'm drawing on this word because Paul does use a particular metaphor that helps us understand that there is something here in the nature of growth. And that word that he uses is fruit. He speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. He speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. He uses this uh, botanical metaphor to help us begin to understand that there is a life of continued growth as we walk by the Spirit. He's not the only one that mentions this. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, he wrote these words. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. But just to stop a moment and just make some connections. We began our service this morning looking at The perfect law of God and the psalmist recognizing its goodness and praying to God, seeking to God for his own salvation and declaring that God alone is the one who saves and that his law is good and right. Adam brought to our attention in our confession this morning that we struggle in our flesh. The Spirit of God is struggling against that. What is it that informs us about that struggle? Paul points to that in Romans saying that the law points to our sin and discloses the sin in our life. And the Spirit of God, who is God Himself living in us, pushes back against that ongoing work in us in our flesh to disobey and to reject the goodness of God and the goodness of his law. And Peter writes that we were born again with an imperishable seed, one that does not perish, pointing again to an everlasting nature of a seed that has been born within us, put in us, and has brought about life. And we know that he is talking about a seed in the way of planting because let's listen to verse 24. For he says, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may have mowed your grass for the last time this year. Maybe not. But you will see in the coming days that the grass begins to turn brown. Now some of you really love your lawns and you nurture it and you kind of help it along and you want it pretty and green and you want to edge it and trim it and you want it to look really nice. And grass does look really nice. But then it does what? It dies. It dies away. It withers away. It's not green anymore. There's a season when it is not green anymore. A flower. Some of you have flowers. And other than the mums and stuff that are blooming now, many of the flowers that you enjoyed through the spring and summer, you've planted and you have enjoyed, and now they're doing what? They're dying and they're going away. Well, that's exactly what Peter was talking about when he was talking about a seed that has been planted in us and that brings life to us that does not wither. But he's not the only one that mention mentioned that. Some of you will remember this. Some of you have committed this to memory because we've worked on it together. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. It's not an uncommon thing in Scripture to give attention to this thing of seed and planting and growth and development and fruit that comes from that which is planted, and that which is eternal. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I want you to hear this, these words because they're going to come up again. The light in the law of the Lord, and on His law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the life of a believer is a life of continued growth. It's a life where the growth is gradual. How many of you have ever planted a garden, planted some seed in the ground, set out plants that had already been germinated and you put it in the ground? Have you ever seen the growth take place? Never seen. I've seen evidence of the growth. But you can sit out there day after day after day and you you could just look at it, but you're not going to see the actual growth take place. You see the evidence of the growth and it is a gradual thing. And Tripp, Camille, I know y'all planted seeds and you've run out every morning to see has it germinated? Is it up yet? And then once it gets up, you run out and say, can I see it grow? Can I watch it grow? And you can sit there and look. One, you're not going to stay there long enough. But even beyond that, even if you were to stand there long enough, you would not see the gradual growth that takes place. But it does grow. Growth is unique in that way. The seeds are planted, but you can't see it grow. But over time, you see the evidence of the growth that gradually takes place. We recognize that even here in this text. Notice that there is the, uh, the comparison between the ways of the flesh and the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit grows, and it's like all other fruit. It is something that comes about gradually. But there's something else that I think we need to pay attention to here is that this fruit does come about. In other words, a Christian life is is a life of growth that is inevitable. It's inevitable. In other words, a fruitless life is inconsistent with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear that again. A fruitless life is inconsistent with the indwelling of the Spirit of God. James points to this fact when he writes in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, and he's talking about faith in Christ, faith for salvation what good is it if he says he has faith but he does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also and he's not he's not pointing to that act of goodness it is a act of goodness he's using that as an example of saying something but doing nothing so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead in other words that analogy that he uses is that this person can be in front of you and say that i'm hungry you can have the means to help and not help but it doesn't change the condition of that individual well This kind of faith that doesn't have works, he says, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And here is where the evidence comes. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, that the Christian life is a life of continued growth and that growth is inevitable. In other words, it is going to take place. And you may not see it take place, but over the course of time, you will come to understand that that growth is taking place because it is gradual. That is the way the Spirit of God works in us. We are declared righteous. We are declared perfect in that sense and then the Spirit of God living in us works in us, transforms our lives and then over the course of time through seasons that growth will take place and our lives will give evidence of that. But there's something else here. Notice that the growth is internal. In other words, what is taking place here is a work of the heart, and we know that's true. How? Because of the objective truth that we started with back two weeks ago when we said that the indwelling of the Spirit of God is not a subjective feeling, but is an objective reality. In other words, the Spirit of God is in us, we read again this morning, if the Spirit of God is not in us, then we do not have Christ. We are not believers. We are not saved. It is the indwelling of the Spirit of God because God has adopted us and it is that ongoing work. It is the Spirit of God that grants us faith. It is the Spirit of God that brings that transformation. It's the Spirit of God that changes us. And therefore, it is an internal work. Now over the course of the next weeks after this, we're going to be giving more attention to this, but just don't be confused. Pause right here a minute. Changes in our life or outward conformity are not necessarily inward transformation. Where there is inward transformation or the indwelling of the Spirit of God, there will be conformity. How do we know that? Well, look back at our text. What do we hear? Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, live by the Spirit. He says, keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, take the step that the Spirit of God takes. Do what the Spirit of God does. Be about what the Spirit of God is about. And we find out from the fruit of the Spirit what the Spirit of God is about. Let's rehearse those again. Hopefully they'll get ingrained in us as we begin to to look at this more deeply. But But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. Now frankly, all of us know that these can in some way be evident as characteristics in a person's life apart from the indwelling of the Spirit of God in some way and in some fashion. And we're going to look at that. So just because we see what we believe may be these things in a person's life does not necessarily equal the inward transformation. We're going to talk more about that. But what I want us to pay close attention to is that the appearance of conformity The appearance of conformity may not necessarily be pointing to inward transformation, but these as the fruit of the Spirit of God as they come together as a whole and as there is an ongoing work in a person's life where these are being manifest and these are growing, they are evidence, it is evidence of an inward transformation. Transformation. The unbeliever's efforts to be a better person are seen in his or her efforts in outward conformity. And this conformity can be driven, we know, by all kinds of motives. Just simply set out to say, I want to be a better person. I want to do better in this. I want to be a patient person. I want to be a kind person. I want to be a giving person. But the believer in his flesh can also spontaneously seek to conform without the conformity being consistent in or in step with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Spirit in the believer is an internal work. And Paul gives us the formation of that internal work and I want us to see it here in the text today and it is seen primarily in one area and that is the change in desires. Look, if you will. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. And then everything else that Paul has to say is based upon what we have already seen, this tension and this conflict, but this idea, this word, uh, this reality of these desires are what are pitted against each other. In other words, the flesh desires one thing and the Spirit of God desires another. Now that word desire means a, just kind of a, a, a super kind of desire, a, a really intense kind of a desire, a desire in which one is wanted more than the other. And we've all been in places where the desires of the flesh ruled in our lives. In other words, we were going to satisfy those desires. In fact, everything about our world. And we're going to talk about that and Adam will talk about it this evening. And we have been talking about it and Booney will conclude it next week as we, uh, as we look at this talk series that we're doing. But the point is, is that the world tells us if we have the desire, then that desire must come from God or come from somewhere, come from within us and we should fulfill that desire desire whatever that desire is but Paul says here that the desires of the flesh that are consistent with those of the world are in opposition to the desires of the spirit or in other words that super desire the psalmist speaks of it in this way that it is a change in desire a new desire that God gives us which is what Paul says that the spirit of God comes into the life of the lost person makes him alive and with that there comes a new desire change desire The transformation of the heart now because the Spirit of God lives in us is opposed to, the Spirit of God is opposed to those desires that once ruled and reigned in our life. Psalm chapter 37, you may want to turn there. You're probably familiar with this text. But the psalmist writes, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist saying is that because I have trusted in God, I now have a new desire and God fulfills that desire. My desire is for God. Notice how we know that. He says because I have delighted in the Lord. I have trusted in the Lord. I have befriended faithfulness to God and who He is. I have committed my way to the Lord. I have trusted in Him. And therefore now my desire is clearly bent toward Him. My desire is for Him alone. My heart is for Him alone. My life is for Him alone. And therefore, He gives me the desires of my heart. Notice that those desires are not consistent with the desires of the flesh because the Spirit of God are opposed to the desires of the flesh. No, the Spirit of God now has transformed the psalmist's heart to where he wants God and in wanting God, God fulfills those desires. In other words, when we want God, we have God, we get God. And the more we want God, the more He fulfills our desires to want Him and to long for Him and to love Him and to serve Him. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit results in the transforming work where the desire of the believer the desire of the believer's heart is transformed by the Spirit and then that person conforms to the Spirit's desire. You see where the transformation is in the change of desires of the heart and now The person whose life is being transformed inwardly now is outwardly conforming to, looking to the things that in his heart he now wants and now he seeks that and he goes after that. He conforms to the Spirit's desire. But now what is the Spirit's desire? The Spirit's desire inconsistent with the flesh. Well, let's look at it. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16, verses 8 through 14. Jesus, in speaking to His disciples about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that was being sent whenever He died, was rose again and ascended. And we know the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. He says, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning... Sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, he is going to speak against that which has once been desired, the desires of the flesh, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He said, I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He will do what? He will guide you in truth. In other words, He will push you toward truth. He will exalt truth. He will hold truth up in front of you. He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And what will He do? He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. So He is going to hold up and exalt truth. He's going to exalt Christ. He is going to bring honor to the Father. How do we know that He's going to bring honor to the Father? We'll turn back over to chapter 3. Just suck it. I've lost my place now, but go to Romans chapter eight. Go to Romans chapter eight. Verse 12. For then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is consistent in in some ways, in a large way, with what Paul is writing to the Galatians. There is, in this case though, this ongoing killing of the sin, this ongoing mortification of the sin. Paul says, walk by the Spirit in Galatians, but here he's saying, put to death uh, those deeds of your body. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father. In other words, there is this bringing on of glory, pointing to glory and honoring God by recognizing Him as Father and calling Him Father. The Spirit does this work in us. It is an ongoing work. A work that is growing. It is internal. It is inevitable. It is gradual. But not only is a Christian life a life of continued conflict and a life of continued growth, it's also a life of continued grace. Let's look at the text. How do we recognize that? Well first we understand that in verse 18 that we are led by the Spirit. God is gracious in leading us and guiding us to helping us see, helping us know and recognize this good desire. That is this God honoring, God exalting, this desire for God who is the very best of all things. The continued grace of God also, we recognize, provides the victory over the ongoing battle with the flesh. We said what? We said that this fruit, this growth, this gradual movement and change in our desires toward God is a work of God and it is what? It is inevitable. In other words, there is a declared A promised victory in all of this. That is the grace of God. In other words, the flesh is not going to ultimately defeat the believer. We sang about it just a moment ago. Take your worship guides. I don't have my coffee here. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. Turn over to the hymn we sang, Christ the sure and steady anchor. I want you to hear this. The second verse. We sang this. This is grounded in Scripture. Christ is sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on. What tempest? This conflict, this war that is within us. When temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won. Notice that that language is very clear when temptation when temptation claims that battle, in other words, we have yielded to the flesh because of this conflict and it seems the night has won deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. It's right. the flesh seems to have won. I will hold fast to the anchor, what? It will never be removed. The point is, is that in Christ, that victory is assured. That's the reason that when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he said, why? He said, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said this, God never throws us back to rely upon ourselves and our own resources. He encourages us rather to grow up as Christians by digging down ever more deeply into the riches of His grace in Jesus Christ. But we also recognize that not only is the victory there, the continued grace of God is present with us as He brings us to our inheritance. Notice what He says, and He does this from the negative side, but recognize this. He says uh, in uh, verse 21, as He concludes uh, this litany of the works of the flesh, He says, I warn you, I warn you, Have you ever seen warning as being gracious? Well, warning is a gracious act. If I'm warning you that there is danger ahead, I am warning you and that is a gracious and a loving act. That's what we do each week when we stand here with our confessions. We are basically, we are confessing things about God, but we are warning each other of the danger of sin. And then we in turn are given the opportunity to inwardly and internally confess those sins and our wrong and, and, and and the wrong that is in us. And we're encouraging each other to do that. That is a work of God's grace. It was a work of God's grace to bring about this change in the lives of the Galatians. Notice what he says in chapter 4 and i found the verse that i was looking for a while ago but look in verse 4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, He is my Father. I'm longing for him. I'm seeking after him so that you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And here's what he said about the state of the Galatians. He said, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? In other words, he is gracious in warning. And so he warns here. He says, if these works of the flesh, if these are your greatest desires, and you are living in them, and you are living out those things, and those are the things that you want. He said, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit The kingdom of God. So who is it that is an heir to the kingdom of God? The inheritance of the kingdom of God. Well, we just read it back over in chapter 4. But if a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. You may want to flip over a page if you're in your copies of Scripture. You'll be close he says, in Him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. What is it that we said we're trying to do? We're seeking to understand how we reflect How we reflect God in a fallen world. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the continued work of God's grace in our life is necessary and therefore it is the life of a believer that God continues to lavish us with His grace by virtue that the Spirit of God lives in us who guarantees us the inheritance. So we are guaranteed the victory and we are guaranteed the inheritance. But there is a third thing we recognize in this text. There is the continued grace of God in our place in Christ. What place is that? Well, look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does it mean to belong to Christ Jesus? Well, we've looked at this text several times, but John 10, 28 and 29 Jesus says, I give them, talking about his children, his sheep, the ones whom he has called out, those whom he saves. He said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So to belong to Christ means that we are in Him in such a way that we can never be removed from Him. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Paul reminds them that you belong To Christ Jesus. Then in Romans we hear these words in chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The desires of our heart. Him intimacy with him, closeness with him. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And as we recall from looking at Hebrews back some months ago, what does that mean? He is there interceding on our behalf. And not only is He there interceding on our behalf, but because we are in Him, if He is at the right hand of God, then our position in Him places us also at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the hope that is built in the ongoing work of God in us toward and for our growth And in his continued work of grace that is being lavished upon us, moment after moment after moment, holding us and sealing us. So, what do we do? What do we do? Two things from this text. One, I believe, is that we remember what He has done and who we are and what we have done. Look in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have done what? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want you to hold that place and I want you to go back over to chapter 2 of Galatians. We're not talking about the same thing that Paul is speaking of in the same way in chapter 2. In chapter 2 in verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, something has been done to me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Equals... Go back to the beginning of the message. If you remember the words transform and conform. Transformed. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Chapter 5. Verse 24, remembering that those who belong to Christ Jesus, it doesn't say, have been crucified, but says what? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what's the difference? I believe here that he is talking about when we came to faith in Christ, when we were converted, we repented of and turned our back to sin, and we turn to God. Paul is calling on us to remember that we have repented and turned away from that. And yes, it does draw us at times. But he is saying, pause and remember that you belong to Christ. You placed your faith and trust in Him. You acknowledged that He was better. You acknowledged that the end in the presence of God was better than anything that could draw you now in the flesh. So remember that. That's helpful to us to remember. That's not me. That's not me. No, this is me. God is for me I am for God because He is for me. That is the old me. And put it behind us. And then too, notice what he says. He says in verse 25, And if we live by the Spirit, let us also do what? Keep and step with the Spirit. An ongoing commitment to walk consistently with the desires of the Spirit because the Spirit lives in us therein is where the conformity comes in because now I'm going to walk consistent with what the Spirit of God has said in and through His Word which is why we began with the Word of God today and we end with it which is consistent with what the Word of God says because God's Word Points to what? His goodness. His greatness. His justice. His grace. His life. His glory. His honor. And what is the Spirit about? About those things. So now... I discipline myself in conforming my life and my actions consistent with the Spirit of God who lives in me, who gives me life. Let's pray together. God, help us as we seek to walk by your Spirit, to live by your Spirit, to keep in step with your Spirit, that we may, as your Spirit does, exalt and hold up truth, seek to honor Christ. And to love you supremely and to honor you knowing that there is no one and nothing that equals you but that you are supremely good and great and wonderful. Fill us with your Spirit. That we may long for You. Fulfill those desires of our longing for You. With You. In Your presence. We ask these things in the name of the One who intercedes for us. Jesus Christ. Amen.